Well, at this time, I invite you to join me in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've worked our way all the way up into chapter 9, and then we took a break for a couple of months for another sermon series. So we're going to jump back into it now at this time in Mark 9. Uh, our family, I think as many of you know, recently returned from visiting my in-laws. And while we were there, they took us to a children's museum, which uh, had all these different rooms in it. And one of the rooms that we walked into was an upside-down room. Uh, so you walked into this little room, and the living room chair and the couch and the coffee table were all on the ceiling. And meanwhile, uh, the light fixtures were on the floor. It was weird and disoriented. Took, disorienting. Took a minute to kind of get your bearings because it was a world that had been turned completely upside down. People often assume, I think, that they are the ones viewing God's world uh, right side up with the right perspective, when in reality their perspective is upside down. Uh, in the early chapters of Mark, those chapters were characterized uh, by large crowds and the public ministry of Jesus. However, Jesus has since that time turned his attention to a more private ministry, uh, the, the, the ministry of training the 12 disciples. And what Jesus sets out to do with these men, he frankly sets out to do with all of his followers, us included, and that is to turn our world completely upside down. Or more accurately, to actually turn it right side up. In Mark 9, 30 to 41, we encounter the, the topsy-turvy world of Jesus. Everything that Jesus says is radical. And it's contrary to our natural way of thinking. But what we'll find is that Jesus is not the one with an upside-down world. It's our world that is upside-down. It is us. And so I want to implore you here today to let Jesus turn your values and your viewpoints completely on their head, completely upside-down. Jesus' estimation of things is the right one. It is the only one that really matters. Join me in Mark 9. I want to read from verse 30 down through verse 41, Mark 9, beginning in verse 30. We read there that they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
If you just quickly look back up at verse 30 with me again, where all of this started. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. At this point in Mark's gospel, we are sitting at about six months from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he has started to make his trek with his disciples to Jerusalem for that purpose. He's avoiding the crowds so that he can give focused attention to the training of the twelve. And in these verses, Jesus provides these men and us uh, with three very, very reorienting lessons. And the first reorienting lesson uh, is a lesson on the heart of Jesus' mission. What is at the heart of Christ's work and his mission and what he is there to do? We need to get this right because if we are his followers, I mean, he invited these men to follow him and all of us to do the same. If we're his followers, whatever is at the heart of Christ's work and mission should end up being reflected in our lives as we follow him. Look at verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Uh, We've seen in Mark that the crowd's perspective, as well as the disciples' perspective of, of Jesus and his kingdom, were upside down. They saw Jesus, or at least they tended to see him as a political liberator, a conqueror, a victor, that sort of thing. They see everything sort of on an ascent upward. There was a lot of this rah, 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 the king is here with a, with a ring of triumphalism to it. But Jesus just keeps speaking again, not of an upward climb, but a downward one. He keeps speaking of his death. And the disciples don't understand it. It's, it's just not computing. Look at verse 32. It says, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus' words left these men grieved, afraid, and confused. And their minds are full of so many misconceptions, they would rather not talk about it. And last time that Jesus spoke that way, Peter piped up and he had a few words to say. He goes, oh, no, 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 Lord, that, that's nonsense. And Jesus told him this, get behind me, Satan. These guys, I mean, Jesus starts talking about this again and it's just like crickets. What lesson is Jesus trying to drive home to us here? I think two sides of the same coin. On on the one side would be this, stop defining mission success as conquest and fulfillment. That's how you and I view almost everything because that's how our world operates and functions. We often determine eternal success based on very faulty and unreliable earthly metrics. We could ask questions like this, what does a successful business look like? Well, we're going to have some metrics for that. What does a successful life look like? Well, we've probably got some ideas of, of that as well. What does a successful church look like or successful ministry? At the end of the day, we love the metrics of conquest and fulfillment, the metrics of growth, numbers, victory, triumph, recognition, status, power, and expansiveness. We love that stuff. And so I think we understand this. These things are the default metrics in most of our minds. And you must stop defining mission success that way as as conquest and fulfillment. And alternatively, on the other side of the coin, start defining mission success as sacrifice and surrender. Jesus is showing us what's at the heart of the mission here. Look at verse 31 again. 
For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. This is actually the second of three statements in Mark that Jesus makes about his coming death. And I think what we take from that is Jesus is repeating himself. Uh, repetition aids learning, as they say, and he's trying to drill this into the heads and hearts of his followers. The death of Jesus Christ was at the heart of his mission. In fact, the entire mission is going to hinge on what he's talking about in verse 31. Anyone who follows Jesus must start redefining mission success as sacrifice and surrender and following in the footsteps of Jesus. In verse 31, Jesus speaks about these things with confidence. He's talking in this kind of language. This will happen. This is going to happen. It's certain. At the heart of Jesus' mission here stood three certainties in verse 31. The first was the certainty of his being delivered into the hands of men. He says there in verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered or handed over into the hands of men. It's a certain fact, Jesus was saying. Uh, And as we read it here in the ESV, it, it makes it sound like Jesus is speaking of it as something future, and it was. But in reality, Jesus spoke these words in the present tense. Uh, The CSB translates this way, the Son of Man is being betrayed. The Son of Man is being handed over into the hands of men. It's already happening, Jesus is saying. Verse 31, it's already in motion. And I, I think that perhaps leads us to ask, well, who in that moment was handing uh, the prophet Daniel's son of man. That's a title all the way back to Daniel 7.14. A title that referred to the one with sovereignty over all of humanity. Who is handing Daniel's son of man into the hands or control or sovereignty of men? Who was doing that? Was Judas already doing that? Perhaps. Certainly in the days to come, Judas would hand him over, and then the Sanhedrin would hand him over, as would Pilate. But I would suggest to you that Jesus was speaking additionally, or perhaps even primarily, of God the Father handing him over into the hands of men. This is the Father's plan, and Jesus is saying it's already in motion. The Apostle Paul would later write in Romans chapter 8, verse 32 of God the Father, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. That's the same word that Mark uses here. The one Gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is God the Father handing over his son. In Romans 4, verse 25, it speaks of Jesus who was delivered up. Again, the same word in Mark, for our trespasses. And raised for our justification. God the Father was handing Jesus over into the hands of men. Why? So that he could die on the cross for your sins. So that you could be saved from uh, God's eternal judgment. And here is Jesus humbly surrendering himself to the Father's plan. Why? For your eternal good. So that you could receive the free gift of salvation. God's free gift of forgiveness and cleansing. As Jesus spoke to his disciples here in Mark. He was literally embodying 
what it means to sacrifice and surrender one's will to the Father for the eternal good of others. Here's the mission. The very heart of it. And Jesus went on to speak of a second certainty, the certainty of his being killed in verse 31. He's going to be handed over, and then Jesus said, and they will kill him. And a third certainty, the certainty of his rising from the grave. Just note, who's speaking these words? And with what confidence is he speaking? This is Jesus speaking into the future. After three days, he will rise. And again, it's a confident prediction from the lips of Jesus. He is going to lay down his life and rise from the grave to save sinners from their sin. I think as we look at these words, there's something very, very uncomfortable about this for the followers of Jesus. And verse 32 demonstrates that. The disciples are... But what we want to do is embrace these words of Jesus and embrace his example. The Christian life is not about all of your dreams and aspirations coming to fruition. That's not the heart of the mission. Mission success is defined by sacrifice, service, and surrender to God the Father. Jesus says, here's the plan, follow me. There's something hard about that for sure, but there's also something very sweet about it. Your success as a follower of Jesus is not so much tied to the tangible, but the intangible. It's not really about how many things you build or thrones or uh, massive crowds. The pressure is not to produce anything like that. The calling of Jesus on your life is, is, is very simply to walk behind Jesus and follow him where he goes. Walking as he walked and surrender to the Father and loving sacrifice for the, for the eternal good of others. Jesus worded it this way. He said, it's me and it's men. He said this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That is what your life is about, Jesus Christ and following him and men, other people, and them following Jesus too. My wife and I uh, immigrated here to Canada almost 10 years ago now. And when that happened, all of our metrics had to change. Uh, I grew up measuring temperature in Fahrenheit and distance in feet, yards, and miles. When Canada became our home, all the metrics changed. Uh, and honestly, we were willing to make that shift. I mean, truthfully, if you're being really, really honest about this whole discussion, our previous metrics didn't always make a whole lot of sense. How many inches are in a foot? Twelve. Why? I have no idea. How many feet are in a yard? Three. Why? I have no idea. How many yards are in a mile? I don't even know. You know, like none of these, it's just random. But that doesn't mean that, I mean, you could sit there and go, hey, this is great. At least this system like makes sense. But that doesn't mean that the mental shift uh, for us doing that was easy. It takes consistent work to shift your mindset from one metric to the other. Uh, that takes work and effort and concentration. And the same is true here. God wants you to define success by a totally different metric, by the metrics of his kingdom and by the metrics of your new country. Jesus and his work are the metric. Your aim is to reflect him, not self-actualize and all your dreams and aspirations come true. Let Jesus turn your values and viewpoints upside down. Stop defining mission success if you're doing it this way as conquest and fulfillment. 
And I think you can do this without even realizing it. And then start defining it as sacrifice, service, and surrender, following in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, that must be your mindset as you look at your life in the home, in the church, in the workplace, in your disciple-making efforts. Uh, on the church side, for example, as a pastor, I could very quickly define mission success as a church that's growing numerically with a busy calendar and schedule and all kinds of things happening and that, that sort of thing. People liking me. Which would make it very unsettling in any type of event where the opposite starts to occur. I was reading this morning in Exodus, I think chapter 5 about Moses and God tells Moses, hey, go back to Egypt and do all these things and Moses does it and now there's a whole nation coming to Moses ticked off. We had to make more bricks than ever and Pharaoh's going to kill us. And Moses, it's all your fault. And all Moses did was follow Jesus, follow the Lord. If we define things the wrong way, we can get very, very confused. Uh, your health, what happens when your health takes a dive and you can't conquer anything anymore? You realize that for, for many of us, someday, if this hasn't happened already, it will happen. We, we will get to the point where our health will not be what it once was. We can't physically do what we once could do. We can't conquer things anymore. And we're sitting there going, how do I live out the mission now? Mission success, when your health takes a dive, would be following Jesus in humble surrender through that and using that trial or that dynamic to reflect Christ to the world and weakness. Jesus says, follow me through that. The mission is still the same. It's not about conquering. In the home, many of us think that our homes and marriages and families exist to make all of our dreams come true. Anybody ever thought of that? I mean, you ne probably never thought it out loud, but you probably thought it. When in reality, our homes are places that can be very, very difficult. They are places that we must die to ourselves in order to love others. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus says that the husband's basically... Uh, specifically that way. That their husbands are supposed to lead their wives and lead their churches as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's just one example in the home, but our homes are places where we have to die to follow Jesus. These are not the places that all of our dreams come true and sometimes it seems like all they are and then it gets hard. And God calls us to follow Christ and look like him. The Christian life and ministry will be hard and difficult at times one of the things that's really neat is that the mission is always moving forward. Verse 31 on the human level looks like, man, that, that's like mission failure. The whole mission just fell apart. And yet it was literally the heart of the mission that drove the whole thing forward. And so many times in our own Christian lives, that, that's exactly the case. Things get hard. Things are challenging. God calls us to, a, to death and to sacrifice and surrender. And those are the very things that God is using to literally move the, the, the mission forward. For the gospel to go forward, for the gospel to go forward in our homes, in our lives, in our, our communities, in our workplaces. Uh, just a quick word here. If, if you've come and maybe you don't know all that much about Jesus or you've never really thought much of what's at the heart of the Christian life, I just want to say that what we read there in verse 31, Jesus did that for you. That he died that he was, God the Father handed him over. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all working in unison together here where the Son is being handed over by the Father. And he's, he's doing that willingly to go to the cross and die. To 
pay the price for your sins so that you could be cleansed and forgiven and washed. And it's a free gift. And what God wants you to do is, is receive him. Receive Christ in his work. I, Christ did something for me that I cannot do, but by faith I'm going to embrace it. God, would you cleanse me and would you make me new? Would you save me from my sin and the anger of God over my sin? That's something you can do right here today. Just a very, very simple cry out to God. God, I believe I want to receive Christ. Jesus has more than one lesson for his followers, though. There's a second reorienting lesson. And lesson number two is a lesson on the essence of true greatness. Jesus here has a radical lesson for each of us on status. We live in a who's who world. Who's important around here? Our world is structured uh, this way. It's structured by position, prominence, and power. And everybody wants to be somewhere, somebody somewhere, even if it's just in their tiny little world. Earlier in Mark 9, Jesus took three men up on this mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Just imagine how fallen human flesh would interpret that. I mean, the three that got to go up there. You know, I mean, maybe we're like the big three around here among the 12 and maybe the, the other 12. Well, I wonder where that puts us and how do we all fit in this structure, this hierarchy? These three men could have come down from the mountain feeling pretty good about their status and, and this great coming kingdom. The 12 all seem to be pretty concerned about who is who. And you and I are prone to the exact same thing. And Jesus has a lesson for us. Stop defining greatness by personal status. Look at verses 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus just graciously poses a question to the twelve that caused them to have to look inward, and they end up feeling rather ashamed of themselves. Defining greatness by personal status is not right. Instead, start defining greatness by humble service. As Jesus speaks to this issue, you'll, you'll note here that he does not reject the idea of greatness. He doesn't say, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to get this greatness idea out of your tiny little brains. No, that's not how he speaks to them. He, he doesn't throw greatness in the garbage. What he does is he actually redefines it. Yes, there are people who are great, Jesus says. But greatness is not what you think it is. Greatness in the kingdom of God is, is not about status. It's not about having position or power or prominence or, or being the preeminent one. It's not about being first. Verse 35 tells us that Jesus sat down and in the culture of his day, as he sits down, he is taking basically the formal posture of a teacher. And he sat down uh, and then he called the 12, we read, and it, it's basically, it's teaching time. What Jesus about, is about to say is very, very, very critical. While we were away on our, our trip here recently, we got to spend some time with my sister and her family. I hadn't seen my older sister in nearly a decade, and I hadn't met any of her children. Uh, the, none of the cousins had met each other, anything like that. So uh, we had a few days where we all were all able to get together. We rented an Airbnb. Uh, our family came. My sister's family, also a family of six, came. My mom and her husband came. 
And we unlocked the front door to this Airbnb. It was an old farmhouse built in the 1880s. And as the front door flung open and eight children ran by, all of us adults, and just started running through the house and exploring, I knew we had a problem. Like, this is not going to end well. So I took it upon myself to lead in this moment. My kids, nieces, nephews, I don't care who you are, but you're sitting on the couch. <laughs> like, we got to talk here. So I gathered everybody together in the living room on the couch, sat everybody down and said, okay, guys, we need to have an important chat. First of all, we hope you all have tons and tons and tons of fun. We are going to have so much fun. We want you to have fun, but please listen carefully. We need to take care of this place and blah, 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 blah. It needed to happen. I mean, there were antiques and stuff everywhere. It matters how we live in this house right now because I don't want to get a bill for $3 million because we broke everything. And we've all had those moments, those, those sit-down moments. Maybe you've done it in your family. You sit everybody down and we need to talk. Maybe at the kitchen table or whatever. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He, he sat down and he's called the 12. And this is really, really important. Look at verse 35 and listen to how Jesus redefines greatness here. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. How does Jesus redefine greatness? You want to be great in the estimation of Jesus. Well, then true greatness is about being last and about being servant of all. Those who are great are not those who make themselves great and of first importance in the eyes of others, but those who put others before themselves. Those who are truly great are not those who expect everyone to serve them and look to everyone else to do that, but those who choose to serve others. That is true greatness redefined by Jesus. In whose eyes do you want to be great? Your own? That would be a great self-deception. Others or the Lord's? Humility is the condition of greatness. And to drive home his point, Jesus uh, uses a visual aid next here. He's sitting down in a home in Capernaum. You may remember we, uh, in the early chapters of Mark, we also found ourselves in a similar place where, Peter, where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And that home in Capernaum, many thought, it might be Peter or Andrew's house. And here we are again at a home in Capernaum, which many believe here, as, as I was kind of getting at there, may have belonged to Peter. He sat down, the 12 may be sitting around him in a, in a semicircle. And what does Jesus do? He calls a child over. Maybe it's one of Peter or Andrew's cute little kids, you know, snotty nose. I mean, just, just imagine a little child who's been running around, probably on a dirt floor, in and around Capernaum, dirty, snotty-nosed little kid. Maybe a niece or a nephew. We don't know who for sure, but Jesus calls him over, this child. The child was a visual of someone with no status, with no power, with no prominence, and was a picture of those who are like children in their littleness and importance in the eyes of almost everyone in the world. So Jesus brings this child over, and he's got this child in his arms. 
mean, these 12 important men have probably sat down and, yep, it's us and Jesus, and we're really important. Now Jesus calls a kid over? And look at verses 36 and 37. And he took the child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives or, or welcomes is the idea, one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. In other words, whoever welcomes or serves or ministers to the, to the least, who has humbly done that, who has done what Jesus just talked about in the previous verses, has actually welcomed and received and served and ministered to me. And not just that, Jesus says, he's welcomed and received the Father, served the Father. Jesus just turned everything upside down in these, these men's minds. And Jesus has modeled this for us. We have passages like John 13 where uh, Jesus girds himself in a towel and then washes the dirty, disgusting feet of the disciples who had been walking on dusty, animal-trodden roads all day long. And one of those people whose feet he washed had a name, Judas. I mean, this is the pattern that, that Christ has set for us. And so... I think this text is calling you to let Jesus turn your values and viewpoints upside down. Stop defining greatness by personal status and start defining it by humble service. You go, I don't define it by, by personal status and greatness. Well, maybe we wouldn't say that we do that, but in everyday life, the way that we live, we kind of do. Think about this with regards to your home and your marriage and your family and your role in those places. Think about your church and your workplace and your friendships and all of your great commission endeavors. When you're following in the footsteps of Jesus, you start to do the kind of things that Jesus did in John 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. Uh, he, he, he's admonishing us to change our entire mon mindset so that we start to say and do things like this. You know what? I, I can do that dirty, undesirable task that no one else really wants to do. I can keep at it even though I'm ready to be done right now? You know what? I can help with that. Let, let me do that. You know what? I really, really want to do this right now. And you feel that in your heart? I want this schedule and all this. I want it all to work out my way. But you know what? I don't have to have it my way. I can bend and I can flex and I can, you know, it doesn't have to be my way. Wait a second here. You know, mid-conversation, something that might very quickly be an argument you know what, I need to lovingly communicate with this person. And this is not just about me winning an argument. That's not the goal. What's that going to accomplish? Or I'm going to respond in kindness and love to that person who just hurt me and betrayed me, ruined me, pierced me with words that were sharper than any dagger. I'm going to serve up the love and forgiveness of Christ. Or I've got a brother or sister in Christ, someone at my church with a need that cannot be met in 10 minutes. Whether that need be practical or spiritual, I mean, this, this is the type of thing. It, it's, it's just kind of big. And they need hours and hours of help and 
conversation, or maybe the help is very, very practical. They, they need a lot, or they need a lot of conversational time of, of listening and oh, let's go back to God's word and just discipleship mentoring time. I'm going to give that. Jesus is saying this, you want to be great? Then serve. Serve like Jesus. And then he has a third reorienting lesson for us. Lesson number three is a lesson on the folly of of a sectarian attitude. Those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ have a natural tendency to, to define who is in the group based on a person or group's relationship to us. We, we have a tendency to make it all very, very, very horizontal rather than based on a person's relationship to Jesus, the vertical. We're quick to identify ourselves as the ones. You know, like our theology is the theology. Our church is the church. Our way is the way. And when that mentality sets in, and it's like concrete in that it sets and it hardens quickly, our eyes are quick to see how people are different than us rather than how they are one with Jesus Christ. We become close-knit communities who can be exclusive, we can be intolerant and cliquish, sectarian, and we need to lift up our eyes and make sure that we are not making enemies of those who are not enemies, but who are actually allies. In this third lesson, Jesus is teaching us to stop defining the team based on loyalty to an identification with you, with us. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. We observe of this exorcist that John mentions that, that he saw Satan as the enemy. That, that appears to be quite obvious. We notice well that this man cast out demons in the name of Jesus. He recognized and invoked the authority of the one true king. And he was apparently successful. And remember here that in the immediately preceding passage, I know it's been a week since we looked at it, but if you just cast your eyes up to the previous passage, do you remember what happened? Jesus was up on the mountain with three of his disciples and the other nine were down below trying to cast a demon out of a boy. And did they succeed? No. They failed. Oh, and why did they fail? Well, remember, Jesus wasn't really a part of the equation. I mean, they're just presumptuously carrying on, and Jesus isn't part of the mix. They're doing this and trying to do it in their own power and strength. And here's this man, in the name of Jesus, casting out demons. And now they're trying to stop this other man. One person observed that what John is looking for is not so much personal allegiance and obedience to Jesus, but membership in the authorized circle of his followers. And so in verse 39, Jesus says, do not stop him. Rather, stop what you're doing. Stop defining the team based on loyalty to an identification with you. And on the flip side, start defining the team based on loyalty to an identification with Jesus. In verses 39 to 41, Jesus gives three reasons for this. Three reasons not to stop him. Look at verse 39. 
But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. First, people truly ministering in Christ's name aren't likely to be the ones who turn around tomorrow and become antagonists. And then look at verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Second here, Jesus does not see neutrality. He just lays it out, it's this or it's this. If a person is working for Jesus in the name of Jesus, he's not simultaneously working against him. And then look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Third, all work, big or small, in the name of Jesus, work tied to Jesus, is seen by him as significant, no matter what it is. Jesus is not calling you here or us to be tolerant of false doctrine or unbiblical ideologies or to be unwise in ministry partnerships or anything like that, but it really does seem that he is addressing our perspectives. One day when you are gathered around the throne of Jesus and this beautiful, glorious day is coming where we will stand around the throne of Jesus with people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, period of history, and people who were a part of all kinds of denominations in their time here on earth. And all kinds of uh, gospel persuasions, but truly believed in the gospel and trusted in Christ. What will be your perspective of them then? I think that changes things a bit. Sinclair Ferguson says in the last analysis, it is more important that the servants of God are devoted to Christ than they are to one of us. Have you ever noticed that cults do tend to have Jesus somewhere in the mix. But Jesus isn't the one that it's really about. It's about the cult leader and the people's attachment and loyalty and following of him. And I think we get to a passage like this and we're forced to ask this question, well, is that what you really want to reflect? The question is not, does a person follow us? But does he follow Christ? Let Jesus turn your values and viewpoints upside down. Stop defining the team based on loyalty to and identification with you, but instead on loyalty and identification to Christ. We tend, very quickly, we tend to think that we are the ones. And Jesus says, no, I am the one. And whoever attaches himself to Christ is for him. And so we want to be aware of, a, of an us-against-them approach in our mind, our heart, attitude, and action. Maybe some probing questions in this regard. What do you think about other like-minded churches right here in the greater Edmonton area? What do you think about other gospel-believing denominations or churches that might represent theological differences from you or from us? Do you evaluate other Christians or churches based on whether or not they sided with or stood with you on an issue where maybe there was room to disagree or more than one biblical approach? Oh, they were with us or they weren't. Our church has people coming, I think, from all kinds of backgrounds and traditions. I mean, think about the people sitting around you. Very different backgrounds, church traditions. And personally, I look at that and I, I just say, praise God, this is so cool and so awesome. But are we going to receive one another or segment based on things like that? 
Also, do you ever fall into a mentality here at church that goes something like this? Me and my people here at church, we are like the ones. The inner circle. We are the ones that make things happen. And our opinions are the ones that matter. One person writes that the clickishness, which too easily affects a defined group of people with a sense of mission, is among the worldly values which must be challenged in the name of the kingdom of God. And again, the question is not, does a person follow us, but does he follow Christ? And if you've got any kind of inner circle complex going on, it needs to die. If any of us do, if our church does, it needs to die. Let Jesus turn your values and viewpoints 